0: Welcome to the Howe Institute for Society's podcast, How Conversations, where we talk with courageous and authentic leaders about how we can build and nurture a culture of moral leadership throughout society. What does it mean to be a moral leader today? Who has moral authority in our society? What should we expect of our leaders during a crisis? And what are the moral leadership frameworks our leaders are using to navigate through these challenging times? These are just some of the nuanced questions our hosts cover in their discussions with CEOs, military generals, educators, philanthropists, and other leaders about the importance of moral and ethical decision making. And now, here's the Howe Institute for Society Senior Fellow and co host, Dana Bourne.
1: Hello, I'm Dana Born, a distinguished fellow in moral leadership at the Howe Institute for Society. I'm also a retired Air Force Brigadier General. For this installment of the Howe Conversations podcast, I had the honor of chatting with my former classmate from the Air Force Academy and former Chief of Staff of the Air Force, retired U.S. Air Force General David Golfing. David Golfing, he prefers to go by Dave now that he's retired, dedicated his life's work to serving the United States, notably referring to his job as a sacred duty. During his time as a command pilot, he was shot down, rescued, and led missions to rescue others. By the time General Goldfein, Dave, retired in 2020, he was the chief of staff of the Air Force, overseeing almost 700,000 servicemen and women, and a tremendous responsibility, one that he did not take lightly. I was grateful to have the opportunity to talk to Dave about the importance of serving with humility, courage, and building a strong moral character. I hope you enjoy our conversation. I want to start with asking you a question that you love to ask airmen. And I know you said this when you went to the Air Force Academy, that you like to go up and ask airmen, tell me your story what led you to service? And so I'd like you to share some of your story. What led you into service?
2: Yeah, I will. But uh, Dana, I'm going to start off by just reminding everybody here that you served as well. And not only were we classmates, but uh, we were squadron mates. And you were the first in our class to make flag general officer and uh, to serve as the Dean there. And so thank you for your incredible career in service. So my story is not really that unique. My father was an Air Force veteran, 33 years, Vietnam veteran, fighter pilot, flew F-4s. My older brother went to the Air Force Academy, class of 78, and graduated as the cadet wing commander there, and so it just sort of seemed to be the natural progression for the Gold Fiend boys to go into the Air Force and to the Air Force Academy. I will tell you, I had two... Very unique experiences at the academy uh, that we can talk about the first two years, which were quite a bit of a struggle, and the last two years that were quite a blessing.
1: Yeah, let's talk a little bit about that because you uh, participated in a program called Stop Out, which was to take a year off between uh, your first two years and your second two years, and. At the Howe Institute for Society, Doug Seidman, our CEO and founder, talks about when you hit pause on a machine, it turns off. But when you hit pause on a human, it it's actually begins or starts. And mm-hmm. you did that. You took a full year off. And, and I'd love like for you to share with us a little bit about why and what you learned uh, in that pause for your year off.
2: Well, you may remember, uh, Dana, I was uh, I was struggling a bit at the academy academically. I think uh, I was uh, I was hovering at a 1.9 to 2.0 uh, GPA, and I was uh, I was just not doing that well as a cadet. And uh, I think the academy leadership uh, we sort of made a mutual decision that I could probably use a year to get my act together. Quite frankly, so. At the time, you may remember, my passion was music at the time. And my childhood heroes growing up were folks like uh, Harry Chapin, James Taylor, you know, sort of that genre. And I got a job as a roadie for Harry Chapin. Mm. So this is an opportunity to go out and really pursue that other passion. And my only way of getting to him uh, in New England was to get on a 10-speed bicycle and ride from my girlfriend, now wife's house in San Antonio, uh, ride a 10-speed bicycle across the country to join up. And that was the tragic summer of uh, 1980 when he had his car accident and was killed. And so I found myself on the road in the middle of America with no no plan. So I continued to ride for the remainder of that year. Just me and uh, I found a little dog on the way and who traveled with me. And what we what we did was discovered America and I discovered America and really had a chance to reflect and think about this business of serving and defending the many people I met along the way. So many of them who took me in to their homes, who opened and embraced this, you know, long haired kid with a beard, you know, on a bicycle with a, with a puppy. (laughs) And I came to the conclusion that, America is worth defending. And so when I went, when I made that phone call from, I remember it was in Bowling Green, Kentucky uh, on a cold rainy night, I called back and told them I was coming back. And since that day, I've never looked back and it's really helped me to define why we serve. It's to predict this great experiment called democracy and the many people that i met, just incredible Americans I've met along the way who took the time to take me in.
1: It's a beautiful story, and we're so glad that you did. And one of your quotes where you talk about uh, leadership and service, you say leadership is a gift uh, th- from those that you serve. I wonder if you might not talk about that. Uh, what, you, what you mean by that of um, you know, a, a leadership uh, for those or from those that you serve?
2: You know, we, we often, I think as leaders, grow into these positions of responsibility, and we start going off the tarmac when we start believing that, that we're entitled to any particular things as leaders, or that, that the folks around us that we're privileged to serve are uh, honoring the person over the position the position of chief or a higher level, you know, I had a personal security team and I would travel to and from work and around town. And especially when I traveled, you know, I would have a security team, a hard car, normally a chase vehicle, you know, cars in front, cars in back. And on occasion, you know, in order to make a meeting or whatever, you know, they have the authority to turn lights and sirens and we can, you know, move our way through traffic. I never liked doing that. And especially when I was on the road and I had a train team that didn't really know me and they would try that. I would ask them you know, quietly to turn off the siren, turn off the lights. I said, here's what you have to understand. Everyone you're shoving to the side is my boss. I actually work for them. And I owe it to them to be respectful, you know, as I, uh, as I make my way to whatever. This, this meeting that we're going to is not so important to be disrespectful to those I'm privileged to serve, which are the American people that we're shoving to the side here you know, as we go forward. So it's a, it's a privilege and I think leaders have to understand that.
1: Let's transition into talking about decision making as a moral leader if we can, because you've had to make such incredibly difficult decisions. They probably get more difficult as you advance in position of authority and, and rank. And uh, sometimes the options aren't optimal, uh, but you have to decide. How do you, maybe you share an example of how you made a, a really challenging decision and what you did to kind of keep hope and faith in uh, the hearts and minds of, of Airmen to support the mission.
2: Yeah, thanks, Dana. You know, what I would tell folks as well, especially young, young commanders, you know, the higher you go in rank and responsibility, the harder the decisions are, and they should be. And if you are, as a senior leader, are spending your time on easy decisions, you're actually wasting your time and you're probably doing somebody else's job and they don't really need your help. So everything that comes into the office of the Chief of Staff of the Air Force is hard. It's murky. There are no defined, you know, easy answers. Usually the easy or good options are long gone. And so sometimes you're faced in finding what's the least bad, you know, of the options that have been presented to you. You know, every move you make as a leader causes a uh, equal and opposite reaction in the opposite direction, which means that some number of people are not going to like the direction you take. And so don't take the happy road, take the right road. If you know that some number of people are going to be unhappy, it actually frees you to make the right decision. The only way you can get it completely wrong is try to make everyone happy, which never works. So take, take the right road, not the happy road. To be able to make good sound decisions, you have to have a diverse team around you that does not look at the world the way you do. Because we all have blinders on. I, I've never been the only woman in a room. I've never gone through what you've gone through. I've never had uh, everything I've said said uh, scrutinized to a completely different degree like you have, I've not ever had people say things to me they probably thought were funny, but were actually quite degrading and I had to just suffer through it. That's not been my experience. Every room I walk into has been full of me. Mm-hmm. you know. And so if I have a team that I've built around me that has my life experiences, my background, then I'm, I'm not gonna see around the corners that I need to see and understand the issue from such a diverse perspective.
1: You told a story in, in one of your meetings about the flesh-colored Band-Aid, hmm. and I wonder if you might talk a little bit about uh, diversity and inclusion, and maybe advice for some of our listeners of how do you really bring together uh, a diverse and inclusive team and recognize that we have these blinders or, or blind spots or biases that we bring in?
2: The story, uh, very quickly, is uh, I had a you know, senior NCO chief mass sergeant walk into my office when I was a young squadron commander and said, hey, sir, uh, this ought to make you mad because it makes your arm, a lot of your airmen mad. And he threw a box, this box on my desk of Band-Aids. And so I looked at him and went, hey, what are you talking about? I don't, I don't get it. What does this have to do with it? You know, flying operation. He says, well, read the box. I said, you know, Johnson & Johnson, flesh-colored Band-Aids. I said, hey, chief, what? okay, what are you talking about? He said, well, I'm going to show you and he ripped a band-aid out put a, you know put a pink band-Aid on his black skin and it's showing like a beacon. And he looked at me, he sort of winked and he said, that, that ought to make you mad because it makes a lot of your airmen mad. and he walked out. All right, so I, I share that story because it's a visual I think that you can get in your head that I couldn't see it. There's no way I could, I could have sat there for weeks staring at the thing. no way I it. it's blinder, right? What other color would flesh- color band-Aids be but pink? it's what I put on every day, you know, or or whenever I, right. It's what I'd use. It's what, you know, again, the world sort of just, you know, it's not the same experience. So we have these blinders. So if you start the dialogue with, okay, I have blinders. I need someone to help me see what I cannot see and diverse teams perform better and come to much better uh, solutions, much more creative solutions then the more complex and hard the problem, the more important a diverse team is. So you get the very highest levels of government when you're talking about being a joint chief and you're talking about being a a chief of an organization and responsible for the national security of the nation. I can't think of an area where diversity and diverse teams are more important. To me, it's a war fighting imperative in the military And perhaps in business, it's also an imperative that we have to have diverse teams to be able to create the solutions that we need some of our most complex challenges.
0: Did you know that 86% of employees believe there is an urgent need for moral leadership in the workplace? And 77% of employees believe that moral leadership can be learned. The Howe Institute is proud to offer the Next Gen Fellowship for Moral Leadership, designed to help emerging leaders also be moral leaders. Learn how your organization can join the fellowship by visiting our website, thehowinstitute.org.
1: of all the characteristics that you would uh, say are important for leaders, specifically moral and ethical leaders, what's one characteristic that you say is, is kind of the preeminent or most important characteristic?
2: You know, throughout my uh, time, I would get the question like this, especially, you know, I love the ones from young airmen. I mean, my, my, probably the, one of my funniest moments, great moment was I went down at Lackland air force base, basic training and they picked a certain, you know, a selection of, cadets or, or trainees because we, we, they hadn't earned the title airman yet and they chose them to sit with me and have lunch. And there was this young uh, woman who was sitting a uh, some young lady is sitting across from me, a basic 19 years old, looked at me and she said, she goes, Hey, sir, I got a question. And she pointed this to the stars, you know, and she goes, how do I get some of those? And I, and I just chuckled. I said, well, you know, being selected from all of your peers to have lunch with the chief staff, of the air force, not a bad start. I said, but most importantly, for you to think about at every level is character being the foundation of any successful leader in the air force terms, you know, what I would tell young commanders, especially and senior NCOs, I said, you know, unless you got an Oscar on your shelf somewhere for just great acting the airmen in our Air Force are so wicked smart. They're gonna see right through a say gap. They will see right through you. And so we live in a glass bubble in a fishbowl, and we ought to welcome that. From the moment you open the door to your home and step out on the landing to the, to the time you close that door, you know, 12, 14, whatever many hours later, you're on. And the higher you go in leadership positions, the loneliness that comes with leadership is not that there are not plenty of people around you, it's that you are more and more responsible for the outcome of the decisions that you make. Mm -hmm. And when you're having those quiet moments when nobody else is around and you're thinking through a decision what you always go back to, what we all always go back to is that core of our being, which is our character. How do we act when no one's watching? Mm
1: -hmm.
2: How do we handle the little things, the small decisions? So it's not only the secret to success for that young, you know, basic who wants to become a general officer, but it's the secret for all of us that without character as the foundation, the rest doesn't matter. There was a period of time in our military where we got a little bit out of balance, I think, uh, in the, probably in the middle years of the the war against violent extremism, we started valuing uh, competence over character and we got a bit out of balance and it had, we had a, a series of, you know, tragic actions, Abu Ghraib, you know, Sergeant Bales. I mean, we had, we, we had a series of, tragic tragedies that went right to the heart of who we are as a military representing this great experiment called democracy. And I think we worked, we all in leadership positions worked to right that ship a bit to make sure that both character and competence are equally valued in leadership. So I'd say that that, that character is the foundation
1: and my sense is from your answer, it's not only from at every level within the military, across all sectors, and, uh, you know, the private sector as well as the military, uh, clearly. I'm wondering if you might talk a little bit about that, linking the military and civilian lenses together with regard to uh, risk. As you pointed out, uh, the risk and in, in some of the work to be done uh, and the impact of the, the, the potential outcomes based on what you do or do not do, having, you know, guided by character. How do you think about risk from a military lens for civilian, but also maybe what we learn from civilians in the military?
2: Yeah, thanks, Dana. You know, my first uh, few months as chief, I had sit-downs one-on-one with as many CEOs as I could talk to. And I said, I've never been a CEO I don't know or have a background in the pressure that you face to present quarterly earnings and and deal with your shareholders and stakeholders. I said, I do know that I'm a principal customer and I'd like your advice on how to be a good customer. They said, look, we're gonna make risk decisions and we're gonna make calculations and we're gonna spend, uh, we're gonna make investments based on what, what we hear you say. And it's really important that you be clear with us on what it is that you want where you're going and why so we can make important risk decisions in our company to align. And then one of the CEOs said, you know, I'm making way too many uh, static displays, meaning in fact, you know, investing corporate money based on what they'd hear the chief say, right. And then have the service turn left when it was going right. And then corporate investment and risk decisions they were making uh, turned out to be Uh, bad decisions. So for me, what I tried to do was, from that series of discussions, I sat back and thought, all right, where can I take the service? And how do I maintain consistency with the message so that my business teammates are making smart risk decisions? And we've settled on, or I settled on three words that sort of hopefully define the tenure, joint warfighting excellence. Anything we did, any movement we made, would improve this Air Force's ability to fight jointly with our joint teammates, allies, and partners, and be more combat capable. And as long as we were making decisions linked linked to that fundamental strategy, then we would be consistent, and then I could help them with making clear risk decisions that would actually become profitable for them, which we want, and would benefit the service in terms of making us more combat capable.
1: Sounds like a win-win exchange <laughs> that happened there, leading to greater character at a, at a company, organizational level, and a relationship level. Humility uh, just oozes from you. And uh, I think as we talk about the virtue of humility, it's actually service in action, which has been uh, your life journey. Someone quoted you as advancing and enlarging the prospect of peace. And I know in our own conversation with each other, that drives you and and developing moral leaders is also something that you're incredibly passionate about.
2: Developing moral uh, leaders with humility is perhaps as important today as at any time uh, in our history. You know, we are the 800 pound gorilla, right? When I, just to you know give you an example, as, as, as the air component commander in central command, uh, I commanded the third largest air force in the world as a three-star commander, let alone being the chief staff of the air force. It would be so easy to walk in and just be the bulldog in the room. But the problem with that approach is that we have as much to learn as we have to offer. And especially when it comes to the cultural understanding of the region, no one can substitute for those who have grown up there that, that know. And so, so internationally, it's so important to be humble. Uh, When you approach problem solvers, when when we went into COVID, we built a a network of over 120 air chiefs that we built sort of a chat room approach where we could share what we were learning and and thinking about. And we learned so much from, you know, the the Italians who were sort of the first ones that were having to deal with COVID, right. Great discussions with my Japanese air chief uh, counterpart You know, so throughout the world, we had this ongoing discussion about how to contribute as a U.S. military and as air forces to this global pandemic. And that would never have happened if the first shot out off the bow would be, hey, let me tell you everything that we're doing. And, you know, you need to get in line with us. Not only is it disrespectful, but it shuts off learning opportunities. And so... I do believe that both uh, individually and collectively, it's time for us to show uh, a bit of humility. You know, I'm a guy you mentioned at the beginning who is alive today because of some young men, because women weren't in special operations at the time. You know, some young men who came, risked everything, got shot at to rescue me from, you know, getting shot down. I owe these guys my life. That makes you a little bit humble. And so I do believe that it is not a sense, sign of weakness to be humble and bring humility to the table. It's actually a sign of strength.
1: Well, you certainly bring that strength uh, to everything that you do. And I just want to thank you for participating in this How Conversation on Moral Leadership. And we wish you all the very best in the next chapter of your journey. And uh, we salute you and we thank you deeply. Thank you, General Dave Goldfein. Dave.
2: Thanks, Dana. And thanks to you too. For your incredible leadership at our Air Force Academy and throughout your career, and now at the Howe Institute, and for taking on this important topic. I'm uh, I'm honored to participate.
1: Thank you for listening to Howe Conversations, and thank you to our mission partners, Levi Strauss and Company, MasterCard, and the Ford Foundation for their incredible support. If you enjoy my conversation with retired General David Golfing, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing, and sharing. It means a lot as it helps us to get other ears on our podcast. Please join us again next
0: time. The Howe Institute for Society seeks to build and nurture a culture of moral leadership, principled decision making, and values-based behavior to elevate humanity. To learn more about our work, please visit our website thehowinstitute.org and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter at The How Institute.